Good evening. Good evening. It's good to be here with you this evening. And let me move this if I can just a little bit. You can scoot over the side for a little bit. You'll set it Set that just like this. Okay. Watch the cord right there. There you go. Okay. Well, if that falls off, it's not on me. So, <laughs> welcome to the pregame show. I mean, tonight's lesson that is uh, interrupting the pregame show as we speak. But uh, tonight, what we're going to talk about may sound a little bit strange because it's not something that we talk about all the time, but it's an interesting topic, I hope. And for you, tonight only, it is the first edition of this sermon that's being preached. Usually you all get leftovers, but tonight I actually haven't preached this sermon yet, and so you're going to be the first audience. So you can feel just a tiny bit special with that. But the question tonight, and the question that we aim to answer is, does demon possession happen today? Okay, that's our topic. That's our goal. We're going to try to give an answer to that. It is a popular idea. It is one that's unfortunately becoming even more popular even today in our society. And one feature of that is that fear sells very effectively. So whether it's news or whether it's demons, if you can get people to be afraid of something, then you can gain a little bit of popularity from that. So what we're going to do we're going to break this down into a little bit of the context of what it looks like in the world today and how we find it, and then more importantly, what the Bible has to say on the subject. And then we're going to take a look at some questions that come up as a result, and we'll try to answer those as we go through. And so, the context of demon possession. What exactly does that mean? Let's start with this. It is a more common phenomena than you might imagine. And so it is not peculiar to Christianity where we find demon possession, or especially possession by some kind of spirits. And so if you look at the broader religious world, you're going to find a form of possession by some kind of evil spirits in Buddhism, in Hinduism, even in Islam. You're going to find it, of course, in a lot of tribal religions all across the globe. You'll find it in Taoism. You'll find it in Christianity, of course. You'll even find it in Judaism. And so take your pick, but for most people in most places, there is some familiarity with this idea, and it is common enough. Now, that being said, it is more common in some places than in others. And so it is more common in third world locations. It's more common among people who are poor, perhaps less educated and more remote, and the greater likelihood then of seeing possession is going to be tied to those places. But also, there is a religious component to it as well. And we would we'd be remiss not to mention a, a few areas that we might find this. Now, whether or not you know it within Christianity, there are really two groups that you're going to find demon possession most commonly a part of. That's going to be among Pentecostals, and it's going to be among Catholics. And, of course, that's kind of one that you would expect. And so we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. Now, nothing that we're going to do is aimed at any particular group or at any particular people. But at the same time, we talk about things where we find them. And so that's going to be part of the context as well. So we will see this in higher prevalence among these certain groups. In fact, within the Catholic Church, not demon possession specifically, but exorcism specifically is part of the catechism. And so it's not an outlying feature, but it's something that is understood and something that is assumed to be somewhat normal. And of course, if you're talking about the Catholic tradition specifically, there is a pretty 
well known at this point pattern, but it is that a priest is going to perform an exorcism if they have reason to believe that there is demonic possession. And this is usually accompanied by maybe reading of certain passages and certainly reciting certain <coughs> prayers. Once this starts, it doesn't stop. And that could be a matter of hours, that could be days or even weeks of trying to exercise said demon. And in all of this, the reasoning would be because you think that someone has a demon. Now, what would lead you to believe that? Well, there's a certain set of symptoms, we might say, that are commonly thought to be associated with demon possession today. Now, what are they? Well, we'll list a few things. Most of the time, you're going to think of someone who is moaning or screaming, someone who has unnatural body posture, which could be a lot of different things. Someone or somewhere where there's a cold feeling in the room, it's a little bit vague, but that's often associated with this. A change in voice in the individual, sometimes speaking in tongues or, or a language that's not understood. Levitating, supernatural strength, and self-harm of different forms, cutting, probably primary among them. And so with all of these, one question that we would want to ask, and we'll get into this a little bit more, is how does that line up with what we see in the Bible? A few of these things, we might be able to say, yes, superhuman strength, we see it. Self-harm, we see that. Even moaning or shouting and shrieking, we see that. The other things, perhaps a bit more theatrical, but they're not really biblical. And so a lot of what we understand today probably comes more from the cultural view that we've taken on of demon possession rather than the biblical. And so tonight what we're concerned with, of course, is not what the world says about the possibility of evil spirits inhabiting people, but rather what the Bible has to say about it. And so, we'll get into this. First, just remind yourselves of what a demon is. Demon is kind of a, a loose term. In the New Testament, the word is daimonion, which is from the Greek and transliterated into English. It really can just mean any lesser spirit, as in not God or the divine, but something on a lower level. It actually technically, in Greek, is not evil, per se. It's just a lesser spirit. But in the New Testament, the way that's used is almost every time going to be of an evil spirit. Now, sometimes the term demon is not used, and sometimes it will just be an evil spirit or something like that. We'll see that in the Old Testament as well. And so these are some sort of wicked, acting, spiritual beings. We won't get into the origin of demons tonight because that's just a whole other topic that would take a lot of time that we don't have. But they can, at least at certain times in history, control or possess or even oppress humans without necessarily being uh, possessing them. Of course, that only happens when they are given permission to do so because they are servants of Satan in whatever form that takes. That means they are still subservient to God. And so God will have the ultimate say as to what they can or cannot do. <coughs> but if we're going to look at what the Bible says and do a proper survey here, at least time permitting, then we want to start with the Old Testament. So what do we see of demon possession in the Old Testament? And I'll say that it's probably not obvious immediately. You don't necessarily think of dozens of examples of this happening. But it is potentially suggested to be. <coughs> so what would we look at? Probably the biggest or most common suggestion is going to be the evil spirit that afflicts Saul. And so if we look back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, as one example in particular, 
we can see that this happens. That the spirit of the Lord is actually removed from Saul. And when that happens, an evil spirit comes upon him. 1 Samuel 16, 14. And so when that takes place, you might say, well, maybe there is demonic possession happening then, a thousand years before Christ. Well, maybe. But in the text, and actually each time this spirit is mentioned as coming upon Saul, it says that it is a spirit from the Lord. Would we expect a demon possession to come from the Lord? I don't think so. I don't know exactly what was happening to Saul. Again, you could have a different study on that topic. But if it's from the Lord, it's questionable as to whether or not it could actually be demon possession like we see in the New Testament. The second place that we would see a reference to demons at least is in the Song of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17 in particular is a reference where the people are being called out for the adoption of pagan practices. And one of those pagan practices that they're starting to get interested in is the practice of the Canaanites of offering their children to demons, the text says. Now, let's remind ourselves that in the Hebrew that's being used here, the term that's being used for Hebrew is just shade, which just means demon of sorts, but it comes from a root, which is shud, which just means to make desolate. And so it, it's not specific enough to say, oh, that is the demons of the New Testament. It's just a word that means some kind of wickedness. And certainly we can say that anything that the people were offering their children to as sacrifices qualifies as wickedness. Amen. And so it is a wicked spirit of some kind, but even still, even if we accepted that that were a demon they were offering their children to, that does not mean that there was demon possession happening. It just means that someone was following the teachings of or even making sacrifices to a demon. Very different than the possession that we will see later on. One more thing we'll mention. Not quite in the Old Testament. At least probably not in your version of the Old Testament. In the book of Tobit, chapter 8, the first three verses. This is in the Apocrypha, in the Deuterocanical books. There is reference to, actually throughout the book of Tobit, there's reference to demons. Now again, it's not actually demon possession so much, but in chapter 8, it's the wedding night of Tobit. He's trying to keep the demons away from his, his bedroom. And so he lights a candle and, and does some other things. But there's not demon possession happening, but there are demons being mentioned. And so there seems to be a little bit more interest perhaps during this time period, the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, more interest in and seeing a little bit more talk of demons. Now into the New Testament. In the New Testament, as a general pattern, we have the Gospels, we have the history in the book of Acts, and we have the Epistles. In the Gospels, do we see reference to demons? We see a lot of reference to demons. We see a, a massive amount compared to anything else we'll see. In the book of Acts, do we see demons? We see a few. And we'll talk about a couple of the the better known examples there. In the epistles, do we see demon possession happening? Pretty much not. And we'll talk about some references to demons, but do we see it happening the way that it was back in the Gospels? It's not there. And so there's some kind of diminishing return when it comes to demons in the New Testament. And so that might give us a hint as to what's going on long term. So in the New Testament, like we said in the Gospels, we find demons being cast out in untold numbers. Literally untold. We don't know how many. In multiple passages, it will just say that Jesus went to such and such a place and he cast demons out along with healing the sick. It doesn't say how many. It doesn't say for how long. It just says he did that. 
And then we have plenty of specific cases, the most famous probably being Mark 5, with the example of Legion. And we, we see a particular demon being cast out, or a group of demons, rather. And so there are a lot of references in the Gospels to demonic possession. And they are cast out of the young, the old, the male, the female. Interestingly, the Jewish and the Syrophoenician. If you'll remember the woman that comes to Jesus who begs for her daughter to be healed of a demon that is possessing her. And so apparently Satan and his workers of whatever kind they are are not discriminatory. And they will possess anyone and everyone. Now we don't know the geographical range that that affects, but certainly within the area of Judea at that time, there was a lot of demon activity going on. The other thing that we see in the Gospels, though, repeatedly each time that this happens, is that the demons have a respect for and a literal fear of Jesus. Right. They are, for whatever reason, and it's not explained perfectly, but we kind of get the idea, they are afraid of the Lord God on earth, as they should be. And that will come into play as we talk more. In the book of Acts... The best known case probably of a demon possession happens in chapter 16, happens in verse 16 and following. So Acts 16, 16. By the way, if you were trying to reference the Church of Christ as a name for the church and you gave somebody Acts 16, 16 instead of Romans 16, 16, they might be a little bit confused because we're talking about demon possession. So in Acts 16, 16, there is this girl who follows Paul around. Remember the story? And, and she said to have a spirit of divination. Now, that doesn't say demon. In fact, we don't know exactly what was going on with this individual. But she had the ability, at least in a limited sense, to prophesy. And so whatever that may have been, it was bothersome to Paul. So he cast out this demon of sorts. And so it probably is demon possession. That's not too surprising. We're supposed to be close to the time of the Gospels. But that's one other example. One final example we'll look at in the book of Acts comes in chapter 19 and verse 15. Again, this one's pretty well known. 19 and verse 15, there's a group who are trying to cast out these uh, demons as well. In this case, it doesn't use the word demon either. Instead, it uses the term evil spirit. Or in the Greek, it's pane rumos, or pane ras pneuma, which means spirit, of course, but that means evil in a certain sense. But as it's used here, it implies that it is a demon. You don't have to use that word to mean that concept necessarily. But in this case, of course, the demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And so we see direct communication from the demon. That's another pretty common feature, that they are able to speak through the individual that they are possessing. And so, again, in Acts, we see these demonic encounters. But it is worth mentioning they are far fewer. They're not happening at the same level that they were when Christ was on the earth during his ministry. And so perhaps that's because of chronology. Perhaps it's because we're farther along the timeline. I would suggest that's probably true. It also may have to do with geography. The story of Acts very quickly moves itself out of the region of Judea and into the broader Mediterranean world at that time. So if it was a more localized event, this kind of demonic activity, then perhaps it's not as spread out into Greece or into Anatolia or anywhere else. So 
in the the letters, the epistles, after the book of Acts, what do we see? There are different examples we can look to, but we'll turn one place in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the first verse, it warns of a coming day when people will listen to demons. And it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There is a, an irony in this text. The idea of demon possession is not necessarily brought up, but the idea of demons and following the teachings of demons is brought up. And right after that, there are some other specifics that will hint at those who are going to be doing some of this deception. And two of the things mentioned are abstinence or, or celibacy, really, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from certain foods. Now, those two things do have ties directly to what the teachings, the later teachings of the Catholic Church will be. And the mention of demons here within the same text is not to say that the Catholic Church is made up of demons by any stretch of the imagination. Rather, the, the teachings that deceive people do come from a certain source. And if they don't come from God, where do they come from? There's only one other option. And so people have been tricked by this very thing. But this is, again, not an example of people being possessed by demons. Rather, by their own will, they choose to follow the teachings of demons. Amen. So, it's not demonic possession happening this late into the New Testament. Instead, it is the following, the, the willful following of this kind of teaching. Now, in the text that was read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 20, specifically here, it says, Rather the things with the, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. This is quite similar to the text we just read, in that it's not talking about demon possession. It's talking about worshiping demons, or pagan worship. But in this case, Paul is saying, really, the gods that they worship, the pagan gods, are not so much gods as they are demons, because they mislead people toward their ultimate destruction. And so nothing is hinting at the, pos the possession of demons here, rather the association with Demons. And so Paul isn't saying, don't go and get yourself possessed by a demon. He says, don't go and associate yourself with a demon. And so there is a little bit of a difference there as well. So the only other place we see demons mentioned, or devils, if you're reading from the King James, all of these are going to say devils, is in Revelation. We see a couple of places there in chapter 16, verse 14. We see it in 18, verse 2. We're not going to get into that. We have enough trouble to deal with without getting into Revelation, talking about demons. Just take it as the imagery that it is, as it's being used in that text. And we'll let it alone for now. So, with this in mind, with a, a brief survey of the Bible's usage of this term demon, and looking at how it has changed over time from the beginning of the Old Testament and then throughout the New Testament. What do we see? 
But we see the overall theme is that in the Old Testament, it's not really there. At the end of the New Testament, it's not really there. But for a time in the middle, it's there, and it's there in force. And there is a stark contrast between what we see there and what we see later and what we see before. There's also a stark contrast between what we see happening then and what we see happening now. The question again is, does demon possession happen today? Well, we've only looked at the surface, but if you go back to the Gospels and if you're willing to read all of the accounts of demon possession, they do not in any way or very, very loosely at best resemble the events that we see today that people claim as demon possession. So does it happen today? The answer is no. Nothing like it did in the New Testament. It is not comparable. For example, would it be possible today for someone who is demon-possessed to break out of chains that have been put on them? Does that happen? If you could verify that happening as it did in Mark chapter 5 in the case of Legion, would that give credibility to the possibility of, of demons? It, it would help a lot if you were able to, to prove that was happening. Can demons, as people see them today in possession, can they tell the future accurately? I don't think so. But if they are demons, at least some of them at some point should be able to do that. And yet we don't see it. And so if there is not these kind of things happening, then we would have to question, is, is demon possession happening at all today? And we do not see it happening the way that it would have in the New Testament. Sometimes when talking about miracles happening in the modern day, I'll at least leave a little bit of room open to say that no, it doesn't happen in the same sense that it happened in the days of the New Testament. People aren't raised from the dead like they were then. People aren't restored to the ability to walk when they medically could not be able to. But I'll still say, I don't want to limit God in what He can do and what He can accomplish even today. Now that being said, the reverse here, in talking about demons, do I have any trouble limiting what the devil can do today? I don't have any trouble with that. I'm okay with saying that God has limited his power so entirely that he has very little to work with compared with what he did when Jesus, the Son of God, was on earth. And that's okay. The devil has been, has been bound at least a little bit compared to what he was doing at the time of Christ. And so if this doesn't happen today like it did in the time of the New Testament, the obvious question is why not? Why do demons not possess people like they did? Well, let's start by saying this, that God has a purpose. And he has a purpose for every action, even when allowing evil to happen, at least on a broad scale. I'm not saying there's a purpose for every evil that happens. That's, that's not the, the case. But in this case, we can say that God has a purpose in allowing evil like he did in the case of Job. But in this case, there has to be a purpose. And God's apparent purpose, or purposes, are one, to prove the identity of his sons. How is, he going to, how is he going to prove himself to be the Son of God? By proving that he has the power of God, even over the enemy. And so Jesus is given that power for the time that he's on earth to show that he has power over Satan, as God should. The second thing is to show God's power himself over Satan. How many people believe in Jesus, not just as the Son of God, but as God himself, as they should, because they got to see that Jesus has this power over Satan? Third thing is that it also confirms not just Jesus, but the apostles as well. 
And so it would be one thing if Jesus left the earth and nobody saw a miracle again. But instead, Jesus leaves the earth and people see demons being cast out by the followers of Jesus. Does, does that have an effect on whether or not you believe? It's one thing to say, well, that guy did it before. Okay, but he's not here. Okay, but, but you can do it too. Well, this must be something special. This message must be true. And so God has a purpose. And if his purpose is finished, then the, the event itself will also come to an end. There's no reason for demon possession to keep happening if these goals have been accomplished. Was Jesus able to prove his own identity? He certainly was. Were the apostles able to prove their message to be from God? They certainly were able to do that. And since they were, there doesn't have to be the same type of, of power shown in the form of demon or of casting out demons. And so that also brings up this question. If it did end, if demon possession ended at some point, then when did it end? Well, I think we've answered that somewhat in saying that it coincides roughly with the miraculous age as well. It would have to. And we could go into greater depth there, but again, for time, we'll, we'll leave it at that to say that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 discusses this. But there is a time when perfect will come. And when it does, the other things will be done away with. And in part, that's going to include things like the casting out of demons. Now, one other part we might add to that a little bit before 1 Corinthians 13 in chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians... 12, we'll start in, in verse 7. It says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another discerning of spirits, and to another, different kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. There's a list of some of the miraculous abilities that were provided through the Holy Spirit of God to the followers of Christ. What is not listed? The ability to exercise demons. When is this written? It's written sometime around 55 A.D. Now, either Paul just forgot about that ability, doesn't seem overly likely, or that ability is no longer needed. Either demon possession is mostly absent, or it's entirely absent to the point that it is no longer necessary for the Spirit to give the ability to Christians to cast out demons. And so we can say pretty safely that the age of miracles ends probably within about the first 100 years of the church. But we can say even possibly narrowing it down a little bit more to maybe just a couple decades after Christ leaves the earth would be the, the end of demon possession and therefore also the end of the casting out of demons. Now that's a little bit of speculation there, but it does certainly give us an idea that it was going away. It was on its way out even by the end of the New Testament and possibly no longer necessary even by the mid-50s A.D. So the question then for us, another question then for us, is what about today if there are not demon possessions happening like there were in the New Testament, then what does that mean for those who exercise demons today? Well, 
that would mean that those exorcisms are not legitimate. That's really all we can say, but let's phrase it a different way. Again, this is not to pick on any particular group. There's a strong tradition within certain groups of exorcism. There's a strong tradition of demon possession. And so, what do we see? Well, we see that, specifically as we mentioned before, if there's an exorcism being performed within the Catholic Church, there will be a priest who will go in and they will pray, generally something like a Hail Mary or some of the other more standard prayers of Catholicism, and that they will pray over this person who is demon-possessed. But here's the question. Will a priest that God did not appoint to the position of priest because he did not establish that position in his church, will a priest in a church that God did not build himself, who is praying a Hail Mary, a prayer that God does not desire, over a person who is supposedly demon-possessed, which God has not made obvious to us today that that still happens, will that have any effect? Can that have any effect? It cannot. A priest praying a prayer that shouldn't be prayed from a church that God has not established in His Word cannot have an effect on the spiritual well-being of someone, whether or not they do have a demon or not. And so... The, maybe the better way to answer this question of are modern exorcisms real is to take a look at the New Testament examples and to take a look at the modern examples. How long did it take Jesus, the Son of God, to cast out a demon? It did not take any time. The second the words left his lips or the thought left his mind, the demon was gone. How long did it take Paul to cast out a demon? It was the second Jesus' name left his lips. Demon possession today can take hours. It can take weeks. It is not the demon possession or the, the exorcism of demons that we see in the New Testament. So if that's the case, then why do so many people believe that there is still and behave as if there are still demon possessions happening today? Well, there is a, a certain cultural aspect to it. And I think it's probably the strongest part that we can point to. There was a rise, a trend of demon possessions happening in the 1950s and 1960s, but anyone want to take a guess as to the peak year of demon possession in the Catholic Church? It would be 1973. There's a particular movie that came out that exact year entitled The Exorcist. That year and the year subsequent to it saw a skyrocketing of calls for demon possessions among the Catholic Church and among other churches as well. Is there any chance that that is just happenstance? There is a cultural feature to what we see happening today. And so we see that in that case. We see that in other places as well. We look at the example of a major city like London in the UK. And in London, there are more demon possessions that happen in certain neighborhoods than others. That seems kind of strange, except that the neighborhoods in which it happens are ones with West African heritage. What difference does that make? Well, they come from a place that is steeped in tribal religion, and in particular, that has a strong belief in spirits, and spirits that can inhabit bodies even today. And so that's going to make a difference as well. As we said earlier, there's a higher prevalence of demon possession among Pentecostals as well as other groups. Is it something, is it good for your church to be known as a church that has more demon possessions than others? 
It's probably not the best thing to be known for. And again, that's not to poke fun at anyone, but if your church is the one that's being affected more than others, is that something that is worth being proud of, or is that something that's concerned? It should be an area of concern. It's something that maybe it's uh, because there's more focus or more emphasis being placed on. And so there is a cultural aspect to this as well. There's also a gender gap within the possession of demons, which seems kind of strange. And so if you are a young female, you're much more likely to be possessed by a demon. I don't know if Satan is so sexist that that's just a choice that he makes, or if perhaps that's another cultural aspect to this. And so there are a lot of things we can point to this way now. There is one other major thing that I'm going to mention before we finish tonight with this, which is this question. And this question has come up before. But the question is, could it be that the, the demon possession that we see in the New Testament is actually what we would today recognize as mental illness? Or, kind of vice versa, could it be that mental illness today is actually the result of demon possession? And the answer that we want to give is no. No, it is not. And we're going to talk just a little bit about it, but a lot of people liken demon possession to different conditions, some just as clinical depression, or some as dissociative identity disorder, called multiple personality disorder previously, or some other conditions, in particular schizophrenia is usually the victim of demon possession, or at least the thought that that's what's happening. Okay, let's take a little bit of a deeper look there. In schizophrenia, in particular, if you were going to diagnose someone with schizophrenia, what would you need to be able to show? You would need to be able to show that they have at least two out of these five symptoms, and that these symptoms have persisted for at least the last six months. And so what are they? Well, you would need to, to show that they've had a flat affect meaning that they're sort of emotionless in their appearance. That they've been having delusions. That sounds a little bit demonic, but we'll talk about that. Hallucinations, similarly. That they've had jumbled speech, which means that it's incoherent babbling. Or that they've had a, or been in a catatonic state, a vegetative state. And again, these things have been persisting for at least the last six months. And they cannot be otherwise identified as a different sort of mental disorder or some kind of physical condition that would result in these things. Does that line up with what we see in the New Testament? The answer is going to have to be no, it does not. And so even if we point to perhaps saying delusions or hallucinations, and we say, well, doesn't that sound like maybe it could be a demon? In fact, some people with schizophrenia even hear demons, they believe. And so is, is that the case? Well, by definition, a delusion is something that you see or, or a hallucination, rather, something that you see or hear that is not real. That cannot be the same as demonic possession in the New Testament. Are we going to say that they did not see or hear demons? They did. I can't imagine the terror that that caused, but they did, in fact, see them. Same is true with delusion. Delusion is a belief that you have that is not true. Is it not true that they were possessed by demons? Jesus, the Son of God, recognized that they had an actual demon within them, or multiple demons, and so we really can't say that that's the case. A couple other things you might want to, to point out. One, would a demon respond to an antidepressant or an antipsychotic? Is that how the spiritual realm works? Can they be treated with medicine and medications? Is that going to have any effect on the spiritual state? It shouldn't. 
And so there seems to be something physiological happening here. But maybe the biggest caution, even if you don't believe any of that, you, you have a strong, firm conviction that demon possession and mental illness are the same. Let me ask you this question. Do you want to be known as the church that goes around and tells everybody that has any kind of mental condition of any sort that they are demon possessed? How is that going to help our evangelism efforts to be known as that church that says, oh, you have depression? I think you might be the uh, victim of demonic possession. That's probably not going to go too well for us. And so what can we say about demon possession from a practical standpoint? One, don't dwell on it. Why? Because the more you dwell on it, the more you're going to find it. When do you start to see ghosts? Isn't it when you watch that movie, After Dark, and then you start to hear things that, that bump in the night, and, and you start to see shadows that move on the wall? When is it that you start to see UFOs? When you get interested in it, and you think there might be extraterrestrial life, and then suddenly you start to see lights that are unexplainable in the sky. So sometimes... What we dwell on can change our behavior. And many times those who end up being possessed by demons or think that they are, are people who are already very interested in the occult, people who already have an interest in demons. And so it's not too surprising that that happens. Now, is that, is that all in their head then? I think a lot of it is, but then we also have the example in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28 where God says that he will give them over to a debased mind. And so if somebody wants to believe that demon possession happens today, and they spend all their time focusing on it, then what might happen? I'm not saying that God will send a demon into them, but I'm saying that God will give them over to that idea. And if they want to, to find that idea, then they'll find it. And so that can be a, a real danger. Now, the other thing is, we talked about this, it's dark outside kind of a spooky topic. And so should we as Christians be concerned? Well, there is not an example in the Bible, in the New Testament, or of course the Old Testament, of a Christian, a New Testament Christian being possessed by a demon. It is not seen. And why do you think that is? Are demons real? They are. Do they have power? They do. But if we are a believing Christian, and have been baptized in water for the remission of our sins, and been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is more powerful, the Holy Spirit of God or a demon? If we are New Testament Christians, then any, any demon that would want to possess us has someone too formidable in their way to stand any chance of allowing that possession to take place. Unfortunately, and in a bitter irony, where do most demon possessions happen? In the church, in churches, among Christians. Should that be the case? Not if the Holy Spirit's there. And I, we're not talking about whether that's literal or whether that's figurative and dwelling. It doesn't matter. If the Holy Spirit is present in the Christian's life, it should exclude the possibility of demon possession. Demons, alongside this, we can say couple things. One, demons know and fear our Lord. That by itself should rid us of any fears of demons. Amen. Besides that, they won't cause a problem for us now, and they won't cause a problem for us eternally. Why? Well, because in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, it says that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels, which means that they will be bound right alongside the master that they serve in error. 
The other thing that we'll say, and the last thing we'll say is this. From James chapter 4 and verse 7, it says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Tonight, if you need to draw near to God, this is your opportunity. Tonight, if you have never become a Christian, this is the chance. This is not a time to worry about the, the possibility of demons, but it is a time to worry about the condition of your soul if that is necessary for you. Tonight, if you're a Christian, wonderful. There's a whole world outside of this room that needs to hear the message of Christ as well. Tonight, if we can help you to, to learn more about Christ or to put Him on in baptism, or tonight if you need anything else from the church, right? so you come forward now as we stand and as we sing. Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth the sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus, my friend? You truly you cannot be.
get a hold of somebody this week and we pray that it's a doctor that can do you some good. We're all praying for you. Hope for the very best there. Get some good results. Remember, uh, hope your brother finds out something good this week. They changed it. Though. They oh. said it. Uh, said the second would be too soon, so now they pushed it back off to April fifth. Really? Yeah. Makes no sense to me, but that's the VA. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's the VA. Yeah. I'm sure it probably disappointed him. I'm sure he wanted to know. Yeah. Sorry to hear about that, but uh, we'll keep praying for him. We pray there's something good will come from it. So. And uh, let him hope you can feel better. <laughs> Do all right at work this week. At the moment, it's no good. So Mom had an MRI Friday, and uh, so she goes back this week. So hopefully, maybe this doctor will be able to help her with something and uh, find out if she needs something. Well, I think it better because she's been suffering pretty.